And if you have your Bible, please open with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We're continuing on in this series uh, that we've been in for the last several weeks on the seven deadly sins. And today we're going to be covering a topic that we all know a little too well, and it is the topic of gluttony. I saw some of your faces. You're like, me? Gluttonous? No way! Well, the reality is that this subject is not one that you hear much about. And when you do hear about it, it's a quick once over about not overeating. But the truth is, is that we've all been guilty a time or two, or maybe even more, of gluttony. And if gluttony was just about overeating, that would be one thing. But the fact is this, that gluttony is far more involved than simply just overdoing it at the dinner table or, or eating that extra dessert or, or that fifth slice of pizza. In fact, we live in a world of mixed messages about food. In fact, we, we were standing in line at the grocery store the other day, and I happened to look upon the awful magazines that they have in grocery stores. You guys know which magazines I'm talking about, right? They're just lined at the checkout counter. And these are some of the headings that I read on those magazines. How to lose 10 pounds in a week. Five tips for losing your tummy. And then right next to it, an ad for the best decadent chocolate cake that you can have. Or, or the world's creamiest cheesecake, right? Or how to barbecue like a pit master. Talk about confusing, right? Then there are all of these diets that our culture has decided to come up with. I'm like, man, have mercy upon my soul, Lord, as there are book after book after book uh, about diets, controversies in our culture surrounding school lunches or accurate labels, what's actually healthy for you versus what's not actually healthy for you. You combine all of those things with the standardized health tables that we see and, and size charts, and every one of us is somehow left wondering not only what do we eat, but what size are we even supposed to be? I mean, today, our quest for gluttony and pleasure-seeking is at an all-time high in this world. Think with me for just a moment about how society responds to the craving of gluttony. I mean, we have chewing gum, right? We have chewing gum so that we can have the feeling of eating without actually ever taking in food. We have diet pop with zero nutrients whatsoever, and it is the choice of millions of Americans who choose it because it has no nutritional value whatsoever. Then we have the modern appetite that has led us to the creation of something called olestra. How many of you have ever heard the term olestra? Okay, all one of you or two of you. That's great, right? Olestra is a fat substitute in so many of our modern foods that enhances the taste, but our body is unable to digest it. And so we eat things without calories, right? We chew things that are not meant to be swallowed, and we consume food that our body cannot digest, all so that we can have unrestricted pleasure in eating. Gluttony is not so much about eating, but about how much pleasure we take in eating. On a personal note, 
let me just say that my heart this morning is not to body shame anybody. That's not my intent at all. I also want to say this this morning, that your weight does not determine the sin of gluttony in your life. There was a man by the name of, of Frederick Beekner that said that a glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. It's the feeling of feeding our face but starving our soul. It's overfeeding physically, and yet we live a life that is undernourished spiritually. That is gluttony, in essence. Gluttony, like so many of the other deadly sins, becomes a habit pattern in this life, a routine that we fall into, a groove that gets worn into our character. Gluttony, church, does not end with food alone. Why? Because food in and of itself is not sinful. It's not. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Amen. Right? I see the smiles. Feasting, church, is also not sinful. You're like, pastor, but you're telling us not to overeat, right? No, go back and read the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, if you would. Man, did God's people know how to feast. They did. Yeah, that's right. God's people knew how to feast. In fact, it was God that told the Israelites to feast. He told them to. And so please know that eating this morning, eating is meant to be pleasurable. And it's meant uh, to give us the feeling of being filled after we are hungry. And it's perfectly acceptable to God. And that's not the problem. That's not the problem. Gluttony will creep into our lives and it will corrupt our pleasures when we desire them and that desire leads to something out of control. That's what gluttony is. And so the question before the house this morning when it comes to the topic of gluttony is not how much is too much, but rather how dominated by your desire for pleasure are you? How dominated by your desire for pleasure how difficult in this life would it truly be for me to just give it all up? To, to say no and to still find joy in the things of God. And so the question that every one of us must ask ourselves on a personal level, and please do not answer this out loud. I do not want you to criminate, incriminate yourself today. But is this, am I enjoying food as it was meant by God or is it a pleasure fix? Is it a pleasure fix? Because gluttony's excessive pursuit of the pleasures of the table will eventually dull our appreciation for the blessings that God already gave to us in the first place. It will dull the pleasure that we take in eating food. It will even dull the pleasure that we can have in sitting around a table with other people to enjoy a fellowship meal together. Gluttony will even go as, to, as far as to dull the pleasure that we get from God who created us to be able to eat and enjoy food. It was Augustine who said this, that virtuous people avail themselves of the things of this life with the moderation of a user, not the attachment of a lover. Or as Jesus put it, we were meant to live not by bread alone in Luke chapter 4. 
Speaking of Jesus, if you're not there, please turn with me to John chapter 6 because there's something here in the text that I think that we need to see, something that's often overlooked in this portion of Scripture. I'm going to start in verse number 22 here of chapter 6. And it says that on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now, I want you to stop there in 22. Because the crowds here, to give you a little context of what's going on, the crowds have been gathering around Jesus because he's been performing miracles and healings. We saw that in the very beginning of John chapter 6. Right? And then on the previous day, right before this is spoken, Jesus performed probably one of his most public miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. Just before this is occurring, we see Jesus feed all of these people with a tiny quantity of food. So the morning comes, and the same group of people realized that Jesus was no longer on that side of the Sea of Galilee. And even though he did not leave in the boat with the disciples, they're like, where is Jesus? Right? The crowd does not know that the night before, Jesus walked on water. And in the previous portion of this scripture, Jesus approaches the disciples in the boat, and the boat is struggling against the midst of a storm, and the men are terrified at first, and they think that Jesus was a ghost. And Peter, right, works up the courage. You guys all know what I'm talking about, right? He works up the courage. Jesus calls him onto the water. Peter steps out onto the water, briefly succeeding walking on water before he falls Right? Jesus is taken into the boat, and immediately, immediately, the boat is now on the opposite side of the shore. The opposite side. A miracle in Scripture that's almost described as an afterthought that we miss. Something that we completely miss. How did a boat full of grown men somehow suddenly appear on the other side of the sea? How is this possible? And this passage right here shows us the dramatic plunge in Jesus' worldly popularity. According to the very next verse, additional people are now seeking Jesus because of all of these miraculous signs. So now look at me, uh, look with me at verse 23. And he says, other boats now from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after and the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I want us to stop. Because that verse right there, verse 26, summarizes the entire discussion comprising the rest of this chapter. The rest, the next 30-some verses. The people were seeking Jesus for free food, not spiritual truth. And as soon as Jesus began to explain that his miracles were meant only to teach, the people began to lose interest And Christ will describe how material things 
fade away, but his real purpose is to give people eternal life. That's what we're seeing here in the text. This message not only stalled the crowd in that day, it made them angry. It made them, anyone ever heard the term hangry? When you're hungry and then you're really angry, everything starts to irritate you, but you just really need to eat? Listen, don't be pious in church, right? We all know that feeling, right? This is it. The, the, the crowd became angry, and as a result, all of them began to turn away from Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something here in the text. John uses a specific word for miracles. He uses the term sign. It comes from the Greek word meaning, meaning something that delivers a message. Something that delivers a sign was something that delivered a message, and it pointed people in a certain direction. I mean, the people's reaction to Jesus' miracles were completely wrong. Man, rather than grasping the spiritual importance here, rather than trusting in Jesus and his authority, the people were attracted to the material aspect. They were attracted to the material. They saw the miracle, but they missed the meaning. Completely missed the meaning. It's like running towards a really colorful metal sign alongside the edge of the road. And it's, it's really pretty and that's why you're running towards it and not bothering to read it and missing the danger it was meant to warn you about. Ironically, in the text, the same people who seek Jesus due to his signs will demand even more proof once his claims interfere with their preference. Once, once they interfere. Now I want you to look with me at verse 27. And he says in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be, good, uh, to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, and he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus then said to them in verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I want you to catch verse 36. He says, But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not what? Believe. You've seen me, and yet you do not believe. There is a demonstration here. And I Bear with me for a moment because there's something that we need to tackle before we dive any further. There's a demonstration here in the text to which mankind will always go to resist conclusions that we don't like. Always. The crowd listening to Jesus has followed him now into another city completely. In other words, it was the miracles of Jesus, particularly the one very recent miracle that brought those people there. And yet when those people were faced with a doctrine of Scripture that they did not like, 
The people stubbornly refused to accept it unless there was some exaggerated, excessive proof. Man, is that not the same mindset that we see even here in our culture? I mean, the person who says, I will believe if God shows me this or does that miracle in my life. And that person is actually fooling themselves according to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16. I mean, the one who does not wish to believe prior to a miracle will not believe even after the miracle occurs. I mean, saving faith, church, believer, Christian, saving faith is is based upon the acceptance of God's truth, not on some spectacle or emotion in this life. I mean, I love what my wife was praying just a few minutes ago. Lord, we don't base our lives on our, on our emotions. Why? Because our feelings and our emotions, they fluctuate up and down. And oftentimes, we're deceived by our feelings in the moment. Why? Because we're sinful. Because we're sinful. And so for us today, there will be those who will demand a miracle when they've already been shown ample truth. Man, go back and read Romans chapter 1. The truth that God exists is evident in all of creation around us. There is ample truth. But yet those people are not interested in the truth, church. They're not. And Christ's actions here in the text send a very important message to us, the modern church. Right? We should not attempt to keep attendees with entertainment and handouts. Rather, we should introduce people to the gospel and then let them decide how they're going to respond to Christ. That's what we have to do, church. Unfortunately, for for people then in Jesus' day and for people right now, that as soon as we begin to explain what Jesus' ministry encapsulated and that it was inherently spiritual and not material, most of those people are going to choose to abandon him. I mean, and in this passage specifically, the people were more concerned with their belly than God. I mean, man, they were standing in the presence of the Messiah, and they were concerned about eating food. I mean, that's the problem, is it not? Gluttony is the prioritization of our bodily appetite and craving over our spiritual need and reality. Man, gluttony is the sin of looking to satisfy the craving of the soul. It's a hunger for earthly things and not just food, but anything that will substitute God in our life. I want you to draw your attention to the screens. I want you to see what Paul says about this in Philippians 3. He said, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their what? Their belly. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on what? On earthly things. If you're in here this morning and you claim the name of Christ... If you are in here this morning saying, I have, I have following Christ because he has saved me, then your goal as a Christian is to be more like him. 
Your goal is to be more like Christ. And since our focus should be entirely on that goal, we should consider everything else, in the words of Paul, rubbish. We should consider everything else rubbish. Why? Why? Paul is pleading with the Christian to look at the example of the godly to help motivate us to focus more on Christ. I mean, Paul's suggestion here, right? Because the first time I read this several years ago, I was like, man, isn't Paul arrogant? Follow my example, right? We've all said that a time or two. But no, not at all. Paul's suggestion doesn't come from a sense of arrogance. He's already noted his own imperfections in his writings. In fact, he calls himself the chief sinner in his writings. But in a time before the completed New Testament, in a time in which we are reading after, a living example was important. It was important. Even today, the living example of godly people, even today, can inspire us to a deeper spiritual growth. Amen? Jesus used that same tool of personal example every time he taught his followers. If you read about Jesus' ministry, he was the living example before them. And if you're like, well, where can we go to find these examples in Scripture? Read Hebrews chapter 11. Man, the hall of faith. In the Bible. Read Hebrews chapter 11 because there is example after example of godly people given to inspire the believer to live a righteous and a holy life. And oftentimes we don't look to the examples of other godly people. And why is that? Why don't we look at the example of other people? Why? Because gluttony is a worship disorder. Gluttony is a worship disorder. You're like, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? Gluttony at its core is a craving of the heart. Instead of being satisfied in God and what he provides, it takes excess and it wants more and more of something. I mean, we saw this last week, right? When we looked at greed, just never really truly being satisfied with anything in this life. The thing with gluttony is that it causes us to stuff our lives with things that in the end could never truly satisfy and I know we've all found ourselves there before. I mean, look, look again at what Jesus said. Look back at verse 35. This is so important. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. That you don't believe. The people were moved to find Jesus, not because of full hearts, but because they stubbornly wanted another miracle. That's a worship disorder. That's a worship disorder. The, the people didn't want more of Jesus. They wanted more from Jesus. And that's a worship disorder. And the desire for more, right? Feed me, give me, please me. That's gluttony. That's gluttony in a nutshell. And it can get so bad in our lives that the craving for the pleasure that we seek can actually overcome our conscience. Ooh, that struck a chord, didn't it? 
We, we begin to lose all sense of reasoning and understanding. In fact, as it escalates, we even lose the fear of the consequences that are associated with it, even to the point that we lose our sense of self-preservation. I mean, it's a, a craving that's totally out of control. It's a craving or a pleasure that is driving your life. For you note-takers this morning, and even for you non-note-takers, I want you to write this down. I want you to remember it. I want you to tattoo this on your heart, that the opposite of gluttony is self-control. The opposite of gluttony is self-control. Which kind of leads us to this place really that raises the question, what, what is biblical self-control? What does that even look like? I'm going to hopefully break this down for you. Biblical self-control as taught in Scripture. As taught in Scripture, it refers to the ability to govern or, or to master your desires and your impulses and your emotions and your actions according to the principles and power of God. Biblical self-control is relying on the Holy Spirit and aligning yourself with God's will so that you're able to resist temptation and make wise choices and live a life of righteousness. In the Bible, self-control is often associated with the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, right? And that should be an indication to us as a Christian that it is a characteristic that is cultivated only through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. The power that he gives through Jesus Christ into the believer. Self-control, church, is beyond mere willpower or human effort. And this is where I want to pause. So often we get caught in the, the lifestyle rut of behavior modification. We think... Oh, I understand self-control. I understand love. I understand joy. I understand peace. So if I just control my actions in certain circumstances, then it's going to look like I have it all together. It's going to look that way. And behavior modification is not heart change. It's not life change. It means that I'm attempting to do what God is commanding me to do in my own strength and leaving the Holy Spirit out of the equation. And guess what happens in behavior modification? Failure. Failure happens. You will fall even further behind. Why? Because you're disregarding a power that's been placed inside of you by God to enable you to live a holy and righteous life. We don't like to talk about sanctification, but sanctification has to happen in this life. Why? Because we are to be set apart for holy use unto God. And so church... We are here today and we must understand that there is an enablement that comes from God because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And now the, the aspect of self-control is essential to every element of this life. It includes our thoughts, our speech, our actions, our relationships. 
Self-control should encompass every area to help us manage our anger, our outbursts. Help us manage our, our impulsive behavior as sinful. It helps us to practice moderation with our desires and our appetites. It helps us to exercise discipline even with our time. It helps us to pursue purity in our thoughts, in our actions. As I was studying this out this week, I could not help but think of all of the portions of Scripture that are provided to us to develop self-control by renewing of the mind. I, I thought, right, Romans chapter 12. And then I couldn't help but think of what the psalm writer said in, in Psalm 119, meditate on the word of God so that I understand your precepts, Lord. Right? Then I, and then I went back to Romans chapter 8 and how the, the believer is to rely on the Holy Spirit in this life. Then I went to, to Galatians chapter 6 and I couldn't help but be reminded of the accountability aspect of the Christian life. That we need to be held accountable by other brothers and sisters in, in this life. And it helps us not only to maintain a close relationship, but man, it fosters something deeper in our intimacy with God when we begin to pray and worship and obey. Church, self-control is not about suppressing or denying your desires and emotions. It's about channeling them in ways that honor God and align with his will. It's about exercising discernment in this life. It's about setting healthy boundaries for you and the people around you. It's about making choices that reflect God's character and his purpose for your life. Man, the hardest part about all of this is the fact that self-control is a lifelong journey of surrendering moment by moment to the will of God. Moment by moment. And in those moments, we're allowing God to transform us from within as we rely on his strength. And when that happens, we begin to live a life that brings glory to him. And we begin to reflect his character to the world around us. And so what are you saying, pastor? What are you saying to us? We have to live a surrendered life. We have to live a life that, that finds submitted satisfaction in the things of God. In every element, in every aspect. So, travel with me for just a moment back to the Old Testament. Side note. Any, any pastor or author that tells you that you don't have to follow anything in the Old Testament, I would just throw their material away and never listen to them ever again. Go back with me to the Old Testament. There are some 70,000 connections between the Old and the New Testament in the Bible. There's no way to disregard what God did five and 6,000 years ago with the people of Israel as an example for us. There's an example given to us in my favorite book of the Old Testament, Joshua. <laughs> There's a man that is a part of the group of people that made their way into the promised land in Canaan. Joshua's, Joshua's leading, Moses is gone, there's new leadership, and there's this man and his family, his name is Achan. 
And if you've read the book of Joshua, you might remember this. Israelites were about to go into battle and they lose a battle that should have been simple and easy. But Joshua knew that there was something wrong. He knew there had been disobedience in in the camp. And so Joshua starts to call all of the Israelites out and he starts to question them and to testify to their disobedience. And you get to this part where you find this man, Achan, who instead of following the laws that were laid out by God, right? When we make it to the promised land, you are not to be pirates. You're not to pillage. You're not to plunder the land and and the people's property. You're not to take their personal possessions and keep them for yourselves. These were all rules that were set out for the Israelites. And this man breaks God's law, which was a capital offense He steals all of these goods. He takes garments that were from the Babylonians. Like, where are you going to wear something like that in an Israel or Hebrew camp? Where is that? How did you steal all of this, this gold and this silk? How did you even do that? And he buries it underneath his tent. He digs a hole and he buries it. Man, he broke God's law. And without getting too deep into it, At the very end, because he broke God's law, he was stoned to death because of it. But that's what sin causes us to do, does it not? It will cause us to covet and crave so much that we are willing to lose everything for that pleasure to be met. The Bible says that his eyes fell upon it. He stared He couldn't not look at it. He didn't just see the stuff. He looked long and hard. He couldn't look away. Church, the the first step to temptation, don't miss this. The first step to temptation is the second glance that turns into a short stare that becomes a longing that leads you to break out the scales of imagination. So I want you to write this down. The sin is an inflammation of the imagination. Sin is an inflammation of the imagination. When we set our imagination on the wrong stuff, horrible things in this life begin to happen. And, that, and just like that, boom, you and I are consumed and we have to have it covetousness begins to kick in in this life and now we are in deep and when we're at that point in the process when we are in deep in the process you will begin to bring other thoughts and actions into your life that we know are sin filled you will allow them into your life and that is the final step in self-destruction in this life. I want you to look at what James says about this. In James 1, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own what? His own desire. And when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. And when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived my beloved brothers. Man, James is telling you and I that we have to own up to the desire to sin. We have to own it. We have to own the fact that we are sinful and he also is saying that we have to hold ourselves responsible for our sin, for our choices, 
I mean, he's warning us right here and right now that on this side of eternity, in this daily walk, that our old self will always look for an excuse to move back into sinfulness. You guys ever see that in your own life? That your old self tries to creep its way back in? As I've told you guys before, listen, I am a new creation in Christ, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old has passed away, all things have become new. But guess what? My sin nature is right here behind me. It's creeping right here behind me and it's creeping right behind you. And so James is warning us. He's saying, be careful. Do not be deceived. Because when we say yes to our sinful desires, instead of trusting God, sin is born. And when sin grows, it produces death in this life. And so James is saying, Christian, be careful. Be careful how you talk to yourself about the good things in life. Be careful. Emotions are a powerful, powerful thing, but they are not outside of your control. Not at all. When we remind ourselves of truth, we are more likely to trust in it. What matters immensely is that we speak the gospel to ourselves every single day. Why? Why do we speak the gospel to ourselves? Well, because the gospel is the truth about God. The gospel is the truth about God. And so heed the warning this morning, church. Don't allow gluttony to gain the upper hand, ruining and wrecking your life. I mean, your desire for pleasure can and will run wild if it's left unchecked and unchallenged. God did not create for us to be consumers. But today, people are consumed by their desires, and it's out of control. And so as we begin to land the plane here, what do we do? What are we to do in this life? That leads us to our second point. Going to the bread of life is the only way to defeat gluttony. I want you to now jump with me to the end of John chapter 6. I want you to look with me at verse 47. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that came down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that will give for you the life of the world is my flesh. Is my flesh. Why in the world? Jesus says this to every person. That he is the bread of life. If we eat of him, we will live forever. So why in the world would we want to eat the crumbs of this world? Why in the world would we want to consume the stale bread when Jesus offers us eternal life? I mean, through Jesus, we are offered a feast, a new life, new fellowship, a whole new way of living. But too many people, too many people are still hungry because they keep feeding on the devil's delights instead of filling their life with the heavenly bread. Too many people. 
I mean, the image of bread for Jesus is a fitting image, is it not? I mean, bread is made from grain that is bruised in order to become flour. And that flour is then baked in order to become bread, which in turn is broken and consumed so that it can be converted into giving you and I life. I mean, Jesus was bruised for us. He faced the fire of affliction for you and I. He was baked for us in the suffering of the cross. He gave his body over to be broken for the sin uh, of death. And he rose victoriously over the grave. And when we consume him, spiritually speaking, he gives us new life. And so, Pastor, what do you mean when you say consume him? Because there is a belief in some denominations that when you partake in communion, that you're, you're truly partaking in the blood and the body of Jesus, that when you, when you drink that cup, that Jesus' blood is now inside of you, which is false. So what do you mean, Pastor? What do you mean? Well, this is the part that's going to be kind of difficult for some. I'm talking about studying Scripture in our personal walk. Oh, man, that's a noble thought. I've been in ministry for over 14 years. And I've never met a mature, fruitful, strong, spiritually discerning Christian who was not full of Scripture. That was not devoted to regular meditation of Scripture that didn't give to storing Scripture within the heart through memorization. And that's not a coincidence. I don't believe that that is a coincidence. It is absolutely necessary and essential to the Christian walk that after coming to faith in Jesus Christ, that you and I are radically, deeply, experientially devoted and unshakably and unwaveringly persuaded that reading and meditating on and understanding and memorizing and enjoying Scripture is absolutely essential to living the Christian life. It's absolutely essential which would include being in the Word every single day with the aim that we will meet God there. Little by little, we would meet God right there. And that the glory of God's truth would begin to fill us and transform us. And that may seem obvious, right? We're sitting in a room of believers. And so it should be obvious that we should study scripture, right? But it's not obvious. Because I know fairly well along Christians who don't pick up the Bible and read it. They don't do it. They've been Christians for years and they're lackadaisical. And I don't say this to, to demean your relationship with the Lord, but according to LifeWay Research, less than 19% of those who label themselves as evangelicals here in America think that it's necessary at all to read the Bible. Less than 19%. They think that reading the Bible is optional because they know so much already or, or they read other great books. And I don't regard that a very good habit at all. 
I don't. In fact, as a pastor and as a Christian myself and in my own personal walk, I think that mentality is extremely dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. Why is that mentality dangerous? Because Scripture saves. And if that was the only reason I gave you, that should be sufficient. Scripture saves. Scripture frees you and I from the grips of Satan. Scripture is the only hope for defeating a supernatural enemy in this life. Scripture imparts grace and peace and wisdom and knowledge. I mean, the knowledge of God is gained through Scripture, and it's not identical to grace. But Peter said it was a means of grace in first chapter, or first Peter chapter 1. And if we want to be made peaceful and powerful through divine grace, Peter said it happens in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. And where is that knowledge found? Scripture. That knowledge is found in Scripture. Scripture sanctifies. That's not optional. Sanctification is not optional in the life of a believer. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 says, Strive for the holiness, holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Scripture gives you and I joy, and it's the hope of heaven. Man, who's excited about one day standing before our Creator and our Maker in the presence of perfection? Scripture protects you and I from destructive error. So church, the, the bread of heaven saves. The bread of heaven strengthens. The, the bread of heaven satisfies. And so what does all of that mean for you and I? Well, it's only Jesus that can change your appetite. It's only Jesus that can curb your cravings. It's only Jesus that can change the taste buds of your heart. Because our strongest cravings are only ever satisfied by feasting on the bread of heaven. Let's pray. God, as, as we come before you this morning, God, we, we acknowledge in this place that every, every single one of us struggle with the sin of gluttony in some form or facet. And God, we, we confess at times that we have prioritized our bodily appetites or, or our cravings over our spiritual needs and even our relationship with you. God, we, we have sought after pleasure or even satisfaction in earthly things rather than finding some ful- the, the, the true, really, fulfillment that we find only and solely in you. And so, God, as we, we get ready to depart from here, God, my, my request would be that you would teach us to find satisfaction in you and your provision. Lord, that you, that you would not um, allow for us to be driven by insatiable cravings, that we would not be guided by ourself. That we would not be, be driven into out of control desires. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking that with the power that you have given inside of us, that we would be able to resist temptation. We'd be able to make wise decisions and choices. And, and Lord, as we are here, I pray for each one of us to have a renewed mind and a transformed heart. Help us to set boundaries in our lives, to to channel our desires and emotions in ways that would honor you, that that you would give us discernment to know what is pleasing to you, that we would be able to discern the good and perfect and acceptable will of you. 
But God, I, I also at the same time realize that there may be some sitting in this room right now that do struggle with gluttony. And God, I lift those to you right now. Though the one who struggles with the sin of gluttony, and God, I'm asking that you would grant them the grace to overcome that battle wherever they may find them, that they would find freedom from, from the bondage of excessive desire and that they would be able to experience the fullness of life that is found in you. And as we depart, God, I, I pray that we would meditate upon the example of Jesus who sought, uh, who sought eternal things and that he taught us to, to seek eternal things rather than something that is temporary here on this earth. I pray for hearts that are drawn closer to you, Lord. May we look to the godly examples that are set before each one of us. That there would be inspiration in that, Lord, to live for you, to seek you, to please you. And I ask one last request of you, Lord, that you would give us divine encounters and interactions this week that we can share these gospel truths, these, these gospel nuggets with the people around us. And I ask and pray all of these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.